We're in uh, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18 tonight. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. But I, I do have a, I guess a bit of a disclaimer or a warning or something for you tonight. Because we're not going to go verse by verse um, like we typically do. In fact, uh, we're going we're gonna to cover three chapters tonight. 18, 19, 20. So whereas it took us three weeks to cover one chapter, we're going to make up some of that ground and we're going to cover three and one. So obviously we're not reading every verse tonight, so I just encourage you guys as, you know, we'll kind of hit some of the, the highlights tonight. Uh, spend some time in these three chapters on your own. They're, they're really, ex, you know, quite honestly, they're, they're exciting uh, uh, chapters. There's a lot of action involved and you see this beautiful friendship. And so we're going we're gonna to take a, a look at this wonderful, beautiful friendship that develops between David and Jonathan. And it's not just one of the most beautiful uh, pictures of friendship in the scriptures. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of friendship, I would say, in pretty much all of literature. So um, uh, I hope you'll be blessed by it. But I want you guys to be thinking, because I'm going to ask you to share with someone real quick, like, who's the best friend you've ever had? And what is it about that? Now, we're not counting spouses or family, okay? So you guys are off the hook. You don't have to say that if you're sitting next to your spouse. Um, um, I'm just teasing. So who's the best friend you ever had? And like, what is it about that person that just made them, you know, just so special uh, to you? So go turn to someone around you near you just share your quick little if you want to share a quick story you know maybe that's cool but just take a minute and just talk to someone near you about your best friend i gotta tell you man like uh and i know i mentioned this a couple weeks ago but god has really blessed me in my life with um some lifelong friends you know um and that's kind of i think a good indicator of of friendship right because you know you guys know that i'm from north carolina so um you know when we were living in north carolina when i was you know even before Florida, i met um, being in my you know early mid twenties and single and just trying to figure out life and uh, trying to learn how to walk with God and what that means and looks like I mean God just brought along you know a series of friends who either moved away at different points or then you know eventually uh, we moved away and you know I was talking to one of one of them last night Danny Barnes in fact here's what's funny so when I think back home of my best friends it's it's uh, a guy named Donnie Hale. Then there's uh, Dan Parlin, Danny Barnes, and Daniel Bridges. So all D's and three of them are some, some version of Daniel, right? And so when we had our son, we named him Daniel, you know. Obviously from the uh, Daniel of the Bible, and, and the, name mean, the name Daniel means the Lord is my judge. But also because at that time, like I just had three incredibly encouraging men who were, you know, transparent and encouraging and, a lot of fun, you know, just guys that we just were doing life together, you know, and um, so that's, you know, that's, that's how meaningful and important friends can be in life that we would, you know, name our kids after one another. So I, I got a chance to catch up with Danny Barnes last night on the phone and, um, you know, it's just amazing how with these guys, like, I will go years, kind of like Amy said, without seeing them and stretches of months without talking to them. But then when we get on the phone, I mean, it's like we had just seen each other yesterday and we just pick up where we left off and it's just so easy and, you know, casual and it's honest, you know, and we just, um, yeah, you know, uh, 
I'm really very thankful um, that God has blessed me with some some wonderful men uh, to do life with, not just in North Carolina, but obviously here too. Um, but if you kind of look back over the, the test of time and, uh, you know, distance, um, you know, I've, I've been blessed with some friends that really have withstood the test. So we're going to see um, just a wonderful, beautiful friendship develop between a guy named Jonathan and David. Uh, but let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we do that. Um, God, we just thank you, Lord. You have created us for relationship, and um, that's not always easy. Uh, Lord, we, you know, we're, we're sinful, imperfect uh, people. Um, and so sometimes, you know, being in relationships can be uh, challenging, difficult, and whether it's friendship, marriage, whatever. Um, and so I just thank you, Lord, for uh, the grace that you show us. We do bring our ashes, uh, Lord, but you, you bring beauty to our ashes as we sang. And so we thank you for, um, uh, we thank you, God, that we are friends of yours above and uh, above all things. May our time tonight be encouraging as we get into the words. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So real quick, just to set the stage for you, um, uh, we're picking up where David, with one sling of a rock, knocked out Goliath. He crashes face first, and then he, David runs over and he draws Goliath's sword and lops off his head and he picks it up. By the way, I actually told that story in public school one time. We were, I was... Um, uh, teaching a sports elective last class of the day and the seventh graders uh, were challenged to a game of basketball by the eighth graders and so we had to get our little pregame huddle going I said you guys know the story of David and Goliath oh yeah he was a little guy that conquered a big guy and I said yeah do y'all know what he did after he, you know he knocked Goliath in the head with the stone they said no I said he went over there and he took off Goliath's sword and he chopped his head up and he ran around holding up his head you're like ah I said, now you look down there at those big eighth graders. You see them? When this period's over, we're going to be running around holding their head in our hands. And uh, that didn't happen. But it was a good story to tell, great motivation to get them there. But that's where we pick up. He, he, David is he, he's in the king's palace, as we pick up in chapter 18. Um, and he's actually got Goliath's head in his hand. Like, that's, that's where we pick up. Verse 1, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. And we'll pause right there for now. So, it would uh, appear at this point that everything is looking up for David. You know, this, this guy was a little shepherd boy, goes to bring food. He somehow gets caught up in the excitement of things, and he's the one who goes out, and he, he does what no other man had the courage to do. He faces Goliath in battle, and he miraculously comes out victorious. And he's now in good with the king and he's now in good with the prince jonathan in fact it says i hope you noticed that it was there twice in verse one and verse three it's worth noting so if you want to bracket it off both times jonathan loved him as himself in verse three because he loved him as himself here's what's really interesting we're told in scripture that 
that not only does Jonathan love David, but so does Saul. So 16.21, it says this. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly. And then in verse 18, as we just read, Jonathan loved David as himself. And still in chapter 18 and verse 20, now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. So think about what a great life David has. He's gone from tending sheep, like just a stinky, smelly, you know, low man on the totem pole kind of job, to being in the palace where he has found the king's favor. His best friend is the prince. By the way, uh, it continues, he marries Mikhail, and he's now married to the princess. Yeah, Mark is like, wow, what a great life. But if you know the story, not all is well with David in the kingdom because there's turmoil building up. It's brewing in the heart of Saul. Remember, the Lord has removed his spirit from Saul. And what we're going to see is uh, he's going to now, or very soon, he's going to perceive David as a, as a threat. And so as we start to look at we're going to get to Jonathan, but first we're going to look at Saul and his relationship with David. And I think the Lord's got some lessons there to teach us about actually how to ruin a relationship. And then we'll look at Jonathan and, and hopefully see how we can, uh, um, you know, be a, a good friend to someone. So if you'll look at, um, and actually, you know, uh, and this is not, I said this kind of in, I think, in, in the prayer, but we're talking about friendship, right? We're going to look at these relationships. And, and that's what I want us to think about as we look through especially as we look at Saul, right, is think back to the last time you were in a conflict with someone, your best friend, a good friend, a boyfriend, your spouse, you know, like, and maybe even a series of, you know, uh, disagreements or, or whatever. And kind of what is your character? What, what's your behavior like? If you've uh, been in re-engaged marriage ministry, or especially for those of you that have not, there's this little, uh, instruction we're given, right? And it's to imagine that you kind of draw a circle and it's just big enough for you to stand in, nobody else. And the point is this, you just work on the person that's in your circle. Stay in your circle. Don't, don't go over here and go, well, Clint, let me tell you, right? You stay in your circle. So as we're talking tonight and sort of evaluating, man, you know, like how, if I'm just being honest, you know, Marcus used the word transparent. If I'm being transparent as I you know, come before God and look at myself and how do I relate to my spouse, to my friends, whoever it is. Not thinking of, oh yeah, you know what, that person is definitely who you're, no, like let's just look in the mirror, stay in our own circle and see what the Lord has to, to teach us. So here are some things that will absolutely ruin a relationship. <clears throat> the first thing that Saul is, is he is possessive. Did you notice verse two? And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. David is from the field, and he has sheep to tend to. But Saul sees that he can use this guy. This guy just took down Goliath, the guy who terrified my entire army and me. For six weeks, we were slaves to this beast, and David just conquered him. I could certainly use a guy like that around here. And also, when I have these fits of rage, he plays the harp. He calms me down. He's possessive 
of David. Do you ever get concerned that if your friend spends too much time with another person that they're going to be best friends and you're going to be left out? That ever happen? As grown-ups, I think sometimes that even happens. Certainly happens when you're, you know, a teenager or younger, maybe even in college. But as grown-ups, I think sometimes we might, like, we, there's just someone we really seem to have connected and bonded with. But you know what? They have another friend that they really enjoy spending time with. And they don't include you when they get together. He's possessive. He's also jealous. Let's pick up in verse 6. <clears throat> and it happened as they were coming in, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me, they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. This is a joyful celebration. They're playing tambourines. They're singing with joy. But rather than delighting in David's success, Saul, like he gets paranoid. He becomes jealous. Well, I know they were singing about me, but they only said I killed thousands. They said David killed tens of thousands. Like Saul can't take that the women have, in his eyes, at least given David more credit and more esteem than himself. Not only that, but he is so self-centered. Did you catch the end of verse 8? Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? Like David hasn't done anything wrong. He showed up, he fought the fight that no one would fight. He only went into the palace because Saul called for him. But he's so jealous and paranoid and insecure that he is, he is fearful that David wants to take over his kingdom. Maybe, you have, well, I'm not a king. Wes, but like, what are you talking about? Okay. So, can you delight in the success of your friends without feeling threatened? Like if your friends are really successful in whatever they do, especially if you're in the same career field or in school together, when they get accolades, like can you celebrate that and, and not feel slighted in some way? Parents, is it easy to delight in the success of another person's child? Like if you meet kids that are like, I don't know, you know, they do better in school, they're smart, they, they talk, you know, at an early age, way before your kids, or they know more Bible verses than you. Like, does that, does that somehow, I don't know, embarrass you in some way? Or can we genuinely and truly delight in, you know, the success of, of others? Or do we struggle and somehow internally, at least, you know, do we make it about us? I'll be honest, it's not easy. It's not easy. So he is possessive. He is jealous. He's, he's self-centered. And, and he's manipulative. In chapter 18, flip over to verse 17. Listen to all the people that Saul is going to involve in his little conflict with David. Verse 17. 
Then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I'll give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the same at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David when they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him. And listen, and Saul thought, verse 21, I'll give her to him that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now for be become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So who are all the people that Saul has involved in this scheme against David? List them off for me. Michal, the first daughter, Mirab. So both daughters. All of his servants. Adriel. Yep. The Philistine, like he's even going to bring the enemy into this. And now look over at uh, 19 verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. The list of who Saul wants to bring in to this, you know, in his mind, conflict. It, it, the question is not who does Saul manipulate. The question is who does he not manipulate. Or try to manipulate. And the answer is nobody. So if you think about, you know, like, okay, so when I'm in conflict with someone, do I bring others into that who really don't need to be brought into it? And maybe it's just, you know, because you want to plead your case and gain some sympathy or build your army against your friend. You see, when we refuse to submit to God and to his spirit, remember the spirit of the Lord has left Saul, we will live lives controlled by our emotions. And when we live lives controlled by our emotions, we tend to manipulate people and things in an effort to get what we want in this life. And that is exactly what Saul does. And I want to close our at least our little session on on Saul by just painting this, like this is just such a vivid picture if you read it and imagine it. Back in chapter 18, verse 9, <clears throat> after Saul looked David with suspicion from that day on, this is what it says. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand, 
And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. And then in chapter 19, the exact same thing happens. Verse 9, Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So both times we have these two guys, both there in the same room. What is David doing? He's playing the harp. He has the harp in his hand. It is an instrument of soothing to the soul. It's an instrument of worship. And what about Saul? He's got the spear, an instrument of death, of violence. And you know, like you can picture that. I mean, these two guys, like here's David just playing and Saul's just kind of lurking up on him. Harp in one hand, spear in the other. So figuratively speaking, when you're engaged in conflict with someone, what's in your hand? Or literally, what word, like, what do you use your words for? Is it to bring healing and to ultimately bring worship and glory to God? Or is it to injure the other person? Or if you're like me, Sometimes it's both. Sometimes I want to throw the spear first, then I'll grab my harp. Because I'm being honest, in marriage, and I'm just being real, right? Sometimes, like, I, it's just right there, and I know I shouldn't speak the words. And especially on those rare occasions where my wife might have said something to upset me. Before I grab my harp, I will grab my spear sometimes. And I will verbally hurl it at her from across the room. And then I grab my, my harp and I go, oh, but you know what, honey, it's okay, I forgive you. I forgive you. So, what a great image of, you know, how we can engage in conflict, you know, to different extremes. So now we're going we're gonna to look at this friendship between David and Jonathan But before we do, I think the tendency when we, when we read this is we look at it from David's perspective and we go, Lord, bring me a friend like Jonathan. And we'll see why if you're not familiar with Jonathan. And, and here's the thing, there's nothing wrong with that prayer. Nothing wrong with it. But I think our prayer, another prayer should be, Lord, give me the opportunity to be a Jonathan to someone else. Because here's the deal, we live in a jacked up, broken world. You know, think about what happened this past week, Sunday night in Las Vegas. Nowhere near here. But that kind of stuff, it just continues to happen. And it takes an emotional and mental toll on people who aren't even directly involved or impacted. You know, I had to, I went out on Facebook. Y'all know I, I deactivated my account back in, I think it was March. But I was looking for this video of Gabby and Daniel dancing to um, uh, the Fat Albert movie. Um, and I didn't know where it was on my computer, but I knew I had posted on Facebook at some point. Well, if you know anything, like, so I had to log into Facebook, which automatically activates my account. 
I got to go through all this scrolling to find, like, where is this video, man? But as I'm logged on, you know, I start reading some people's posts. Didn't take me long to realize why I had deactivated my account. But I start reading these posts. And, like, seriously, like, and rightfully so, like, people are just hurting over what is going on in our country. And then you throw into that all this junk that we have going on in our own lives. All the pain. Some of it self-inflicted. Some of it, someone else throwing spears at us. All that to say, we live in a broken world where people are hurt and lonely and need the church to come alongside. So as we look at David and Jonathan, really, can, how can I be a Jonathan to someone? How can, that's what I want us to, to kind of look at. Now, when we go back, so we're going to go back to 18 verse 1. Now, at this point in the story, someone tell me about David. 18 verse 1, he's standing there in front of the king with Goliath's head in his hand. Tell me about David kind of socially in this picture. Where's he from? What does he do? You know, those kinds of things. It's not a trick question, guys. We've, we've talked about it the last couple weeks. He is a poor shepherd boy. Right? We talked about last week. List of careers. Ancient Israel. Shepherd boys at the bottom. Fighting itself out or fighting its, its position there with cheese delivery boy. He's both. He's poor. Come from a poor family. He is the runt of the litter. Looked down upon by his eight older brothers. He's standing before the king with like nothing to offer. He's like that's just on the social ladder. He's the bottom rung. Okay. What about Jonathan? Who is he in this picture? He's the prince, right? So if you think about a shepherd boy who delivers cheese to his brothers who are fighting off in the war and the prince of Israel. Like, you could not find two more opposite extremes. He is wealthy. He's next in line for the throne. He has command over everyone except one guy, his dad. He, this is the guy who has it all. And from what I read in different commentaries, like the scriptures, there are clues that tell us that he might be as much as 20 years older than David. Like these guys have almost nothing, nothing in common. When we get to chapter 18, verse 1. So listen as I, as I read again. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that, he, that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow. That's such, a, like, such beautiful language. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. They, they were interwoven. Wanda and some of the other ladies know how to do like crochet or knitting or, you know, like, but you get that picture of like the, the threads or strings or whatever they are, like they're, they're all crossed, you know, like in, and together. 
the soul of David was knit to the soul of Jonathan. So they did have one thing in common that I do want to point out. So if you want to like just circle the number one and then in the margins, you can look it up later, just write 1 Samuel 14, 6. So if you go back, remember we talked Philistines and Israelites, they're constantly at war. So they're at war back in chapter 14. And they're, they're at kind of a, the Israelites are kind of at a standoff. They, because here's the thing, the Philistines, like they are the sort of the experts, the masters in metal work. Israelites are not. So while the Philistines, like, they were not the biggest group in the area, they were the most powerful. So the Israelites, like, they're in camp, like, man, what are we going to do? You know, we got, like, I think it was 400 Philistines across the way. They got all the weapons, like, what can we do? So while they're thinking, Jonathan grabs his buddy in the middle of the night. Doesn't, they didn't even tell anyone. They sneak off. They sneak on over to the side of the Philistines. They pop up. Jonathan kills 20. The rest flee. They scatter. So now you get, so, so now the next time we see Jonathan, he's listening to David tell the story. Yeah, so I grab some stones, put them in there. One for Goliath, four for each of his sons. Because like I told you, bear, lion, don't stand a chance because the Lord is with me. So when he came running and charging, I knew I had, I run, grab my stone, sling, whew, cut his head off here it is sir right now now you know Jonathan go whoa man I got a connection with this guy there's great confidence not in self but in the Lord that knit their souls together so three things I want to mention about Jonathan's love and his friendship for David the first thing is that it elevates it elevates David. So where Saul is jealous and threatened by David, Jonathan has the exact opposite response to him. He gives David his robe. Like this poor shepherd boy who has nothing, here's the prince. Take off my, put this on, young man. You're not a poor shepherd boy to me. We're equals. We're, we're, we're on the same level, you and I. So his friendship elevates David to a higher position. No jealousy, no concerns for what it means to him personally assuming the throne. So he elevates and, and he also defends. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I shall tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Listen to what Jonathan tells his dad, the king of Israel. Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you. And since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? So his love defends. Look in chapter 20 verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan and he said to him, 
man, I feel bad for the queen. Listen to what he says. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you're choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? In other words, it'd be better if you weren't even born. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered, saw his father and said to him, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Like even though everything that Saul has to lose if David assumes the throne, like it terrifies him, he's scared, he's paranoid. Think about it. Jonathan, is this, he's in the same boat. He is the rightful heir to the throne. And yet he will defend David with his life. He refuses to be obedient to his father and kill Jonathan. And he stands up to his father, which, remember, could get you put to death since his father is the king. So he, he elevates and he defends. He also sacrifices. So earlier in chapter 20, David is trying to convince Jonathan that Saul wants to kill him. So we just read where he found out, like he finally realized in verse 30, okay, oh, David's right. My dad does want to kill him. So early in the chapter, they're having this conversation, and they come up with a plan to figure out whether or not uh, David is right. And so uh, they have a plan, and this is what it says in verse 13. This is Jonathan talking. If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and make also, and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I'm still alive, will you not show the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? And you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan tells David, look, when you assume the throne, would you please remember me and show me mercy? And to those members of my family as well? Because the, the practice back then was if someone who's not in line of the king takes over the throne, he kills anyone who's in line with the king, any family. He's removing any threat that he might have as the new king to the throne. So, so think about what that means. So Jonathan is telling David, hey, when you become king. So we're never told where it is in the story, but at some point, Jonathan learns that David has been anointed to be the next king. And he has opportunity and orders to kill David. And if he was self-serving like his father, he would have done it. And no one would have thought twice about it. He'd have every right to. But instead, he sacrifices what is rightfully his, the throne of Israel. So he could elevate David to the position that God has called him to. So Saul is doing everything he can to maintain his rule. And Jonathan, his son, is doing exactly the opposite. He elevates, he defends, and he sacrifices. We need to be a friend like Jonathan to one another and to those who are just, like we said earlier, just in need of a friend. But here's the thing. 
How do we do that? I mean, because look, it's not easy to elevate someone above yourself. To defend someone to the point that it does you personal harm. To make sacrifices where there's a cost. Like when was the last time we paid a price to be someone's friend? Well, you guys, it's recent, man. Y'all have blessed us, like brought us food and, you know, all that wonderful stuff. I'll tell you about my friend Danny Barge, and he and I caught up on the phone last night. I remember what this was, I didn't even know, 15, 18 years ago. We're living in Raleigh, and, and he and I are, we had just finished a little uh, round of par three golf. They had a lighted par three course. And, um, and at the time, and I had never actually shared this with Danny, but part of having, I, don't, I didn't even know what the situation was, but we were in a situation where we had a little financial stress. And so, you know, Danny and I played 18 holes of par three golf. It's nighttime. We got to the parking lot, and you know, I've loaded up my stuff in my car. I hop in, start up the engine, and get ready to leave. And, and I see someone coming, and I look, and it's Danny. And I figured he forgot something or, you know, whatever. And so I run one down and he comes over and he hands me a folded up little piece of paper. And he goes, uh, hey, man, I've been praying for you guys. And, and God just told me to give this to you and don't refuse it. And he handed me a little piece of paper and, I, and he turned around and walked away. It's a check for $500. Like, I hadn't shared any burden with him, you know, about that. And, you know, and, but when you have someone who is, you know, listening to the voice of the shepherd, like, he will lay those things on your heart for your friends. And, and here's the thing. Like, as we have wonderful friends back home, only one family has come to visit us in San Antonio. Danny and his wife and two kids. In the nine years we've been here. And I'm not holding that against anyone because, look, I, I'm in a family of four. I know how much it costs to fly four people. That's why we don't go back, back home unless it's by car. But they came, and then here's the other thing. Then they had to get a hotel. Because, like, we, we thought they were going to stay in our house. Well, his wife's allergic to cats. Got a cat. They had to get a rental car. You know, like all of that for a week. Like there's a cost. There's a sacrifice involved in being a friend to someone. At least a friend like like Jonathan. So how do we, how do we do it? Not even a financial cost. That's not, you know, the main point I'm trying to make, but there's a cost of serving someone. So how do we do that? Well, here's the thing. Here's, I think, the key. We have to recognize that before we can be a, become a Jonathan, we're more like Saul than we would like to admit. You know, we have that selfish, sinful nature in us. And hopefully, like, that's being, you know, redeemed if we're in Christ. But even, even as believers, like we still have that struggle of, you know, worrying about self more than others. So I think that it starts by realizing, man, you know, we're, we're more like Saul than we probably want to think. But then in chapter 18, verse 4, there's this beautiful picture of the gospel presented. If you have your Bibles, flip back to verse 4 in chapter 18. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. It is the picture of Christ who has clothed us, given us the robe of righteousness and splendor. When we truly realize like 
what that means to us. How, as Kevin said earlier, he's made all things new. Then that frees us up to love others like Jonathan. I love that it repeats in three verses. It says it twice. He loved David as himself. And we already talked earlier about how they had this mutual confidence in the Lord. They love the Lord, and Jonathan loves David as himself. Sound familiar? When asked, which is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When we will accept the robe that Christ puts on us, his righteousness, wipe away all the saw that lives within us, and accept that we, have, we, cut, we stand before the king with nothing to offer. But like, jo like Jonathan, David intercedes for us to his father who is on the throne. Suddenly we're free to love in a way that takes risk, that costs us, and that elevates and defends and makes sacrifices for others. So there you have chapters 18, 19, and 20, the Reader's Digest version. I want you to read those on your own this week for more detail. Love you guys. Let us pray, and we'll have one more song, and then we'll dismiss. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the example that is given to us by Jonathan. But more than that, Father, we thank you for your son, that he intercedes on our behalf before the throne that he has placed the robe of righteousness on us to elevate us to co-heirs with him. That very thought is just overwhelming and brings us great joy. So God, as we leave here, would you help us to open our hearts and our eyes to see those who are in need of a friend? And let us know that we are loved unconditionally by you. That we are sons and daughters of the living God. And so there's no need to be paranoid or concerned about what we might lose by elevating others, by defending others, by making sacrifices for others. And that we would be given opportunities to share the love of Christ with those that you bring into our path, Father. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.